بسم الله الرحمن الرحيم الحمد لله رب العالمين والصلاة والسلام على رسول الله وعلى آله وصحبه وسلم تسليما كثيرا إلى يوم الدين أما بعد اللهم لا علم لنا إلا ما علمتنا إنك أنت العليم الحكيم اللهم علمنا ما ينفعنا وانفعنا بما علمتنا وزدنا علما وعملا يا كريم رب شرح لي صدري ويسر لي أمري وحل الأقدة من لساني يفقه قولي All praises belong to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala We praise Him and we seek His assistance and we seek His forgiveness. And we seek refuge in Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala from the evil of our souls and the adverse consequences of our deeds. Whomsoever Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala decrees guidance upon, then none can misguide Him. And whomsoever Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala decrees misguidance upon, then none can guide Him. And peace and salutations upon the final messenger Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wa sallam I bear witness that there is no one worthy of worship besides one Allah and that Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wa sallam is his messenger my dear brothers and sisters in Islam I greet you with the greetings of peace this 18th of April 2015 Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh may the peace and blessings of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala be upon you all uh, brothers and sisters in Islam welcome to um, another episode, Walillahi Alhamd, uh, in our series, Provisions for the Hereafter, or a summary of the book uh, titled Provisions for the Hereafter. And uh, this is episode number seven after our introduction, Walillahi Alhamd. Last week, we uh, continued discussing a little bit about the Messenger of Allah, Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam, and we got up to the point uh, discussing his... Um, revelation or how revelation came to him sallallahu alayhi wasallam and we mentioned seven ways that revelation uh, would come to him sallallahu alayhi wasallam as documented by the scholars of Islam after their thorough research um, of the different narrations describing how uh, revelation came to the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wasallam we did mention an eighth way which is a matter of dispute and that was uh, whether Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wasallam received revelation uh, whilst seeing Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And um, um, in, in, in the statement of Aisha radiallahu anha, um, that particular eighth point would be invalid because she radiallahu anha said that whoever says that uh, the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam saw Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has indeed lied. Um, so uh, based on that, uh, we would say that he received revelation sallallahu alayhi wasallam in one of uh, seven ways. Uh, we're going to go uh, or continue uh, going through some of the aspects, uh, those aspects uh, that um, uh, are particular to the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wasallam and then quickly move on to uh, the next guidance or the next chapter uh, as we find in the summary of provisions for the hereafter. Uh, the book is heavily summarized. The summary uh, is a heavily summarized book. Uh, as we discussed during our uh, introduction. Um, but if we go to the main book, then we see Ibn al-Qayyim rahmatullahi alayhi actually uh, doing a thorough run through uh, the seerah of the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wasallam. We just want to cover those aspects extremely particular to him uh, so that we love Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wasallam and when we love Allah, uh, Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wasallam, then uh, we are uh, more enticed uh, towards following, uh, following him. Uh, and, and, and this is from wisdom and this is from hikmah and this is from the Quranic way as well. The Quran uh, makes us love Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Uh, 
um, and this is clear in, in, in all the uh, surahs of the Quran. And uh, as the pious uh, predecessors be, before us used to say, they used to say that um, you know all the meanings of the Quran are in Surah Fatiha, and, and, and all of Surah Fatiha is in one ayah, uh, which is na'bud wa nasta'in, that you alone do we worship and you alone do we seek assistance from. Uh, and when we look at Surah Al-Fatiha, we see Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala beginning it in a way that makes us fall in love with Allah. Right? Allah says, Alhamdulillahi Rabbil Alameen. All praises belong to Allah. The most purest of praises. Not just any praise. The most purest of praises belong to Allah. And we know that Alhamd uh, is different to a shukr. Right? Um, the praise that is specific to Allah is different to just thanking Allah. We, we normally, you know, hear in rough translations, we should thank Allah or all thanks belongs to Allah. Uh, or we hear uh, all praises belong to Allah. It's not just all praises because don't forget we praise human beings as well. We, we praise people for, for good effort, right? Uh, but when Allah says uh, all praises belong to Allah and alhamd, um, when he makes this term hamd, which refers to praise definite by adding uh, alif and lam before it, uh, which means all the forms of hamd. Which hamd? All the forms of the most noblest of praises belong to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Which means that the praises that belong to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala here are uh, something that no one is worthy of, of having besides Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Right? These are the praises that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala uh, tell us belong to Him. Right? Those praises that nobody else can deserve besides Allah. Why? Because as the scholars of tafsir say, Rahmatullahi alayhim, they say, Alhamd in Surah Al-Fatiha and, 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 and generally all uh, these praises that Allah says belongs to Him refers to uh, praise which is coupled with love and exaltation. Right? So... It's praise plus love plus glorification uh, or exaltation, right? So there's three elements here that make up this praise. And no one is worthy of holding this praise besides Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Because the only being that has the characteristics worthy of this form of praise, where there's praise plus uh, sincere love plus sincere glorification, right? No one is worthy of this besides the creator of everything in creation. Besides Rabbul Alameen, the Lord of the worlds. So Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala here makes, you know, uh, 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 introduces himself to us as the Rabb, as the Lord of, of the worlds, and introduces himself as the one who is only deserving of the most noblest of praises. And these praises entail praise plus love plus glorification. Right? Um, and... Uh, this by default makes us love Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And then Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, Ar-Rahman, Ar-Rahim. Right? The most beneficent, the most merciful. Right? The, the generally merciful and the especially merciful. Subhanallah. So this is who Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is. He's the most merciful. He's the especially merciful. He's so merciful. Allahu Akbar. So what happens? Now, uh, our love for Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala increases more. Right? Maliki Yawmiddin. He's the owner of the day of judgment. The owner. Right? Totally in charge. Totally in charge. Right? So he's the ultimate owner. You might get a king on the land who's only an owner of his jurisdiction. 
And that ownership only lasts the period of his life. That's the reality. But here Allah says, He's Maliki Yawmiddin. He is the owner of the Day of Judgment. The Day of Judgment that will host everything in creation. All the kings that ever existed. All the leaders that ever existed. All the people of, of uh, Sultan and, and power that ever existed. They will be under the King of Kings, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala on the Day of Qiyamah. So what, what happens here? Immediately your love exacerbates. It becomes bigger. It becomes greater. Now you, you know, you, 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 you love Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala unconditionally. Because you see here that you become in awe. And when we become in awe of somebody, we love them. Right? So now that we are uh, in this great uh, placement of, of love and sincere love, not just infatuation, sincere love, immediately we start, we, we want to worship Allah and we want to ask from Allah. So what do we say? Right, you alone do we worship and you alone do we ask for help. Nobody needs to tell us. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala doesn't tell us in, you know, in many places in the Quran, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala tells His Messenger, say, or tells us to say, right? Uh, say this and, 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 uh, and say that. But when it comes to Surah Al-Fatiha, Allah doesn't say, قُلْ إِيَّاكَ نَعْبُدُ وَإِيَّاكَ نَسْتَعِينَ Allah doesn't say, say, you alone do we worship and you alone do we ask for help, right? So, what you, you immediately want to ask Allah and you immediately want to worship Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. This is what happens when you love some, someone. When you love Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. You want to be close to Allah. You only want to worship Allah. That's just how it is. And uh, this is the wisdom of Ibn al-Qayyim rahmatullahi alayhi here. That he is bringing this run through to the life, through the life of Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. So you love him. And when you love him, then you're ready to follow his guidance. And that is why after he, he does this run through, he brings about the guidance related to the different chapters of fiqh. The guidance relating to purity, the guidance related to salah, and so on and so forth, right? So this is a wisdom, and we should take guidance from this, my dear brothers and sisters. Even in education, you know, uh, when I was uh, growing up, I was, I was, I was uh, uh, blessed, alhamdulillah. Um, one of the teachers from the institute that I uh, graduated from, uh, they, they were going for hajj, so it was a six-week journey, and they needed a replacement. And you know, Allah bless me, when, uh, I grew up in Zimbabwe, and, uh, and even in the UK, uh, in terms of um, uh, the community, what would happen is we would have something known as madrasa, which is afternoon school. Afternoon school. So we'd go to school in the morning, all right, from 7 o'clock till 1 o'clock, then we'll come home, and then we would have lunch, and uh, then we would go to madrasa, right, from 6 years of age till 12 years of age. And in madrasa, we would be there from 2 o'clock till after asr, till about 5 o'clock, 2 o'clock to 5 o'clock, right? So it's predominantly a Hanafi community, and we know that the, the Hanafi Salatul Asr is slightly later. So it, you, you, would, you would fit a lot between uh, Salatul Dhuhr and Salatul Asr, right? Because the, the Hanafis consider Salatul Asr to begin when the shadow of an object is one and a half to two times the size of the object itself. Right, so so uh, if you go out under the sun and you place any object, a stick, for example, if the shadow of that stick is one and a half to two times 
the size of the stick, then that would entail Salatul Asr beginning. This is according to the Hanafi Madhab. Uh, or, or particularly, this was the view of Abu Hanifa, rahmatullahi alayhi. His students, uh, the famous students and, 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 and the writers of the Madhab, uh, Qadi Abu Yusuf and Muhammad ibn Hassan al-Shaybani, they differed with the Imam, if my memory serves me right, with, uh, uh, serves me correct, with regards to this. So they were of the view, uh, similar to the view of the majority of the scholars, the Shafi'is and the Malikis and the Hanbalis, or the Malikis and the Shafi'is and the Hanbalis, rahmatullahi alayhim ajma'in. May Allah shower His mercy upon them all. Because those scholars would say that Salatul Asr begins when the shadow of an object is the same size as the object itself. So not one and a half to two times, but so the same, the same size, which means by default, according to the majority, Salatul Asr starts earlier, and according to the Hanafi Madhab that builds their views, especially in ibadat upon the views of Imam Abu Hanifa, rahmatullahi alayhi, then um, the Hanafi Madhab here cons- uh, would would uh, or has considered Salatul Asr to start slightly later because uh, the object or the shadow of an object grows uh, as the sun gets closer to sunset closer to sunset, which means that Salatul Asr, according to the Hanafi Madhab, would start after uh, Salatul Asr is generally known to begin um, according to the majority of the scholars. This is just a, a footnote uh, and fiqh discussion uh, that helps us understand um, you know, these differences of opinion. And inshallah, I will shed some light uh, on this later on, especially before we begin uh, the fifth chapter, so that you know nobody enters a stage of confusion. And I will explain the methodology that we will be using, uh, running through the fifth chapters that Ibn al-Qayyim rahmatullahi alayhi, uh, has uh, mentioned. So, um, coming back to uh, the point that we were uh, uh, discussing, which was, who can remind me? This is, this is a classical case when uh, you enter more things into your prefrontal cortex than you should. And then some main points jump out. Yes, the madrasa did. So we would fit um, um, you know, a lot between uh, Dhuhr and Asr, just coming back to that point. So we would go to madrasa and we would learn our uh, Islamic uh, studies. Alhamd. And this is how it would be between the age of 6 and the age of 12. And alhamdulillah, alhamdulillah, I would like to think that alhamdulillah, I was a diligent student, mashallah, you know, um, I was blessed by Allah to, uh, you know, get that recognition from the teachers and uh, <clears throat> in terms of, um, you know, student uh, positions of, of authority, as we would say, being a prefect or a head boy and so on and so forth, alhamdulillah, I was blessed with that. So as I graduated from madrasa a few years later, when this teacher wanted to go for, uh, for hajj, they asked me to come and teach. So I went in to teach. And very early on, my dear brothers and sisters, I learned the effect of making people love you. Not that you should make them love you insincerely. No, you should sincerely be who you are uh, for the sake of Allah. And inshallah, Allah will place that love. But behaving in a way uh, that causes people to love you. And how did I learn this? Well, subhanAllah, during my time with the students, um, little did I know that there was great progress happening uh, on the side of the students. You know, parents started writing in uh, to the committees to say, you know, what's happened, this new teacher's in, and uh, there's so much interest in our children to go to madrasa, and so much interest for our children to study. Uh, one parent, one letter I actually received, said that, uh, I don't know what you've done, 
But for the first time in history, and I was teaching the most senior class, which was grade 7, um, of you know, 12 year olds. But so, so the parent is saying, the first time in history, in all six years of my child being in madrasa, not once did they ever tell, uh, tell us uh, to leave them at home so they could study madrasa work, ever. And we were absolutely shocked that on the weekend we planned a fun activity and they said, no, I have a, a, an exam I want to study for madrasa. Subhanallah. So I'm sharing with you a personal experience. And um, I was called in by the committee and they said, right, so what have you done different? Let us benefit from this. And I was, I was 17 or 18. And um, what, I, what I could only think of was, you know what, I just um, were with the children, um, you know, as, you know, I would love others to be with me. You just be good to them, kind to them, be sensitive to the situation. Uh, be, a, be with them the way Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa was with the Sahaba. That's it. And that develops love. And the only thing I could say was, it was the love that they had for me, inshallah, that caused them to be interested. Because, you know, I wouldn't say I was a better teacher than the teacher I was standing in for. Absolutely not. He was much senior and much more knowledgeable. Walillahi alhamd. Right? And I was a student of his. He was my sheikh, my teacher, when I was in madrasa. So um, I would put it down to the concept of uh, making your children uh, love you, making your students love you, making your employees love you, uh, making you know, uh, those that are within your sphere of influence love you. When you become beloved to people and you're just a lovable person, then by default people love to listen to you, people want to listen to you. It's just human nature and Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala knows best. And you know, when, when, when I pondered over some of the views of the scholars, what they've said with regards to Surah Fatiha, and I was just thinking, subhanAllah, this is amazing. Um, even with Surah Al-Baqarah, Allah makes us love the book. Right? Allah makes us love the book. Allah gives us, begins Surah Al-Baqarah, telling us about the book. Telling us about the Qur'an. Right? This is a book in which there's no doubt. This, this, this creates a sense of love. It's a book of guidance for the muttaqun, the God conscious. If that's the case, of course, you know, I want, to, I, I want to be part of it. I want it. I want to buy it. That's what happens, right? Uh, we, we, we're intrigued. We're interested, right? And that's what sets the precedence for us to read the entire Quran. So as I pondered over this, I really found out that subhanAllah, uh, this was the way of the Quran. And the Prophet ﷺ was upon the way of the Qur'an ﷺ because القرآن, his character was the Qur'an. So he was with the Sahaba the way the Qur'an was with, entire, with, 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 with uh, those that received it and all of mankind. Upon the way of making people love you. And as I said, don't be insincere. I'm not telling you to be a person outside of the home different to a person inside of the home. Don't get me wrong. I'm not telling you to be a person different in public uh, than you are in private. Don't get me wrong, my dear brothers and sisters. I'm just saying naturally be that person that follows the way of the messenger because he was upon the way of the Quran, sallallahu alayhi wasallam, And by default, uh, with the sincerity, uh, Allah will make people love you. And as we find in the sunnah, in the authentic sunnah, when Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala loves somebody, he, he, he calls up Jibreel. And he tells Jibreel that I have loved him and I command you to love him. So, so Jibreel has received a command to love this person. And then uh, as Jibreel descends through the heavens, all the angels want to know what did Allah tell Jibreel. Allahu Akbar. 
right? And uh, they ask him, and Jibreel says, well, Allah told me that he loves this person and told me to love him. So then the angels of, of, of that particular level of Jannah end up saying, well, then we love this person also. Until all of the creation of the skies love this person on earth. And the love of the skies becomes so overwhelming that Allah sa- that, that, that it, it descends onto earth and enters the hearts of people and the people start loving this person as well. Subhana Rabbi Al-A'la. So I'm telling you to be sincere because Allah knows those who are hypocritical. And if you are hip- hypocritical trying to get the love of people, then, um, um, you know, uh, Allah will not place uh, love in the hearts of people for you. May Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala uh, protect us. Now, brothers and sisters, I'm not saying that people who are beloved, then this is a sign that everything they come with is the haqq. Don't get me wrong. I just want to qualify all the angles here since we've entered the discussion. Because sometimes people say, well, you know, person A and uh, A or person B has so many people loving him and following him. This means he must be upon the haqq. And this is not necessarily true. Right? Uh, because we have celebrities who have the greatest followings, and we know that they're not upon the haqq. So, People uh, love others for different reasons. But uh, the point to mention here is that when uh, we, we, we generally uh, be with people upon a good platform, then they love us. And when they love us, they're willing to listen to us. And this was uh, the way with Muhammad ibn Abdullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. And the scholars of Islam understood this. And that's why Ibn al-Qayyim rahmatullahi alayhi, as I said, this is a diverse book, but it's not a confusing book. It's a diverse book. But even in this diversity, he made sure, he made sure that he did this run through the life of Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, so we love him. And Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala knows best. So uh, just continuing the discussion, Ibn al-Qayyim rahmatullahi alayhi goes on to mention several other aspects of the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. I'm just mentioning um, a, a, a few um, to do some justice to this particular chapter of his in his main book, Provisions for the Hereafter. He mentions um, those mothers that foster mothered the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. Those mothers who fostered um, uh, the Prophet ﷺ. And he mentions Thuwaybah as one of them. And as I said, um, the Prophet ﷺ was famously known to have uh, Halima radiallahu anha as his, uh, or Halima uh, as his uh, foster mother. But he had other uh, foster mothers like uh, Thuwaybah. And Thuwaybah, uh, believe it or not, was the freed slave of Abu Lahab. And we know that Abu Lahab was a fierce enemy of the Prophet sallallahu alaihi wasallam. And with regards to Thuwaybah, uh, some have said that she accepted Islam, but what's clear is that we do not have anything concrete uh, to say that she uh, accepted Islam. And we learn from these brothers and sisters that you know, uh, even from non-Muslims, there's a lot of good that they do. They're human beings uh, by by default, right? And from every human being, uh, there's elements of goodness. And don't forget that Allah created every human being upon a natural disposition, a pure natural disposition, and a pure fitrah which we discussed uh, last week, alhamdulillah. So uh, by default, there's going to be good from people. Even those who are extremely bad, there will be elements of good. Because um, you know, unless we, we have a case where the entire fitrah is polluted, but even if there's an iota worth of health to a person's fitrah, natural disposition, then by default you will get some good from them. Even if they're very bad. Even if they're very bad. You know, shaitan is very bad. 
And even when he spoke the truth in teaching us uh, about Ayatul Kursi and how uh, it, it protects against shaitan, he only did it for his own benefit because he wanted to be released. But we're talking about human beings. And yes, we do get shayateen from the ins, from mankind as well, as Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala tells us at the beginning of the eighth juz. Right? وَكَذَلِكَ جَعَلْنَا لِكُلِّ نَبِينَ عَدُوًا شَيَاطِينَ الْإِنسِ وَالْجِنِ يُوحِي بَعْضُكُمْ إِلَى بَعْضُ وَزُخْرُفَ الْقَوْلِ غُرُورًا So Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala tells us in this ayah that Allah has, has, has uh, made for every messenger those enemies from both mankind and jinkind. And we know that Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam had fierce enemies uh, from the shayateen of mankind like um, Abu Lahab. But this Abu Lahab, his freed slave, um, Foster mothered Muhammad ibn Abdullah sallallahu alayhi wasallam. And uh, as I said, we learn from this that we can get good from the non-Muslims as well. And that's why we must be just. We must be just. It's very important, my dear brothers and sisters. Right? Al-dhulm dhulumat yawm al-qiyamah. Oppression is a darkness on the day of qiyamah or darknesses. Right? Uh, on the day uh, of qiyamah. So we must be just in everything that we do. Uh, it doesn't mean that uh, a person disbelieves in Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and yes, uh, you know, uh, th- their belief is a hated one. That that entails by default that everything from them uh, is incorrect and hated. This is not true and this is not from justice. Right? Allah does not forbid us with regards to them uh, the aspects of being uh, just and, and good to them. Right? Uh, so this is from complete justice. And those who have gone astray and taken extremist ideologies, their problem is they have introduced, in, they have introduced, even though the introduction happened a long time ago, right? They've introduced the incorrect methodology of looking at the Quranic sources. This is what they've done, right? Uh, don't get me wrong, misguidance has existed from the time of Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam only taught us guidance. But he taught us of the presence of misguidance existing from his time until the day of Qiyamah. For Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam told us about, um, about the khawarij. Right? Those people who have these extremes. And, and, and that they might be better than us in worship. And, bet, and more than us, more intense than us in the recitation of the Qur'an. But they'll never under, they, they don't understand it. Right? The, the, the lessons of the sharia do not go below their collarbones, meaning they, they don't understand it. And then they develop a methodology of understanding the sources of the sharia contradictory to uh, that which is considered correct, and then they invent and bring about um, rulings, ma anzalallahu biha min sultan, which Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has not revealed. Right? So misguidance is going to be there for, for, uh, from ever, even today. The extreme groups today, they have taken upon themselves this methodology. Where they take uh, ayat in the Qur'an and they do not study them in light of other ayat. Or they take unclear ayat in the Qur'an and they do not understand those unclear ayat in light of the clear ones. Or they take general ayat in the Qur'an and they do not understand those general ayat in the Qur'an in light of the res- uh, restricted ayat in the Qur'an. Right, uh, or they take uh, the the absolute ayat or ayat with absolute meanings in the Quran, and they don't understand those ayat in light of the uh, of other ayat which are which are non-absolute. Right, or, or contained. 
And, and that's why, it, you know, the, the Sharia is not just for everybody to, to look into. And you know, anyone who, uh, anyone who just comes about and starts looking into the Quran and Sunnah and then, and then starts saying uh, that this is what Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala intends. No, this is incorrect, my dear brothers and sisters. Right? And, um, you know, may Allah protect the Ummah. Because now, uh, the propagation of the misguided methodology and philosophy uh, has now taken to the internet and social media, right? And uh, online resources. Which means that that which was distant from many of us is now very close to us. Because we know, we, uh, as we say, uh, the, the internet, you know, we say the internet has, has, has brought the, the distant close to us, right? So now the young, the old, the males, the females, they're starting to get access to that which before, no, you know, not many people would get access to these things. And now in their mindset is a methodology that they wouldn't have known before and a philosophy which they wouldn't have known before. And now they're starting to benchmark certain realities based on this philosophy and they're starting to become uh, apologetic to misguidance. They're starting to find excuses for misguidance. Right? And the same applies today. Today we know the biggest fitna in terms of uh, incorrect methodology uh, afflicting the ummah is the fitna of ISIS. Right? The fitna of ISIS. And it's very clear that, you know, uh, based on uh, events that have happened, open events that they have taken to the media and brought to the media, it's very clear that they are following a methodology which contradicts the way of Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wa Right? It contradicts the way of the Messenger sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. And sadly, 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 in this you know, age of explosive media, this is what's hitting the screens. And this is you know, what people are starting to understand Islam as. This is what's happening. Right? There's some people who never heard of Islam. And the first thing they hear of Islam is this. So by default, uh, they've taken an understanding that it was not the way of the Messenger sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. And thus they feel they should be more distant from Islam. As a result, we've seen Muslims in the West being harmed. Allahul Musta'an. Right? Because people are scared. People are afraid. This is what happens when you do not use the correct methodology in understanding the Quran and the Sunnah. Everybody says, well, now the Quran is in English. And subhanAllah, now we want to now uh, derive rulings from, from a, a translation of the Quran. And this is one of the first... Uh, X's, or we say the first no-no's, if you want to use colloquial English, right? We say this is from one of the first things you need to stay away from when you want to derive a ruling from the Quran and the Sunnah, and that is to understand te uh, text in light of a translation. You can't do that. So may Allah protect us, brothers and sisters. We're going through fitan, and this is uh, especially the time when you make dua to Allah to protect from fitna. Especially, especially, this is the time when you ask Allah to protect us from fitna. To protect us from the fitna. Which is so dark that it makes the day black as well. Allahul Musta'an. Right? It's so dark it makes the day dark as well. You can't tell the, 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 the day from the night nor the light from the dark. And uh, this is the time to hold steadfast upon the methodology that is confirmed. And that is the methodology of the pious predecessors, 
because that was a praised methodology as the Prophet sallallahu alaihi wasallam said khairul quruni qarni thumma alladhina yalunahum thumma alladhina yalunahum that the best of generations is mine and then those that come after and then those that come after you know some people today uh, some youth they approach me and say well you know we, we, we feel and it's amazing teenagers Allahul Musta'an I mean it's good to see that teenagers have more substance than before when we were growing up teenagers you know it was all about playing uh, video games and okay now we have the Xboxes and we have uh, the Playstations but uh, I'm sure for, for some of the quote-unquote elders <laughs> right uh, especially those born in the in, 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 in the 80s right um, which is now considered old. Before we would say, if you're born in the 70s, you're old, right? But now, if you're born in the 80s, you've 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 progressed in life. Those born in the 80s, it was the Super Nintendos and the Ataris, right? I'm just trying to um, uh, take you back to the past <laughs> or create a blast from the past, right? Those were the games that were being played. They weren't as stimulating as the games today. But this is what the youth were upon. Now it's good to see there's more substance to the youth, but it's sad to see. That whilst they have a substance to want to learn, they've taken unsubstantial means and methodologies to understand the religion. And now they, they you find, I'm sure you're following the news, the BBC and other channels, that they're, they're, they're speaking about Westerners who are making their way to ISIS uh, via certain countries. They're leaving school, they're leaving home, their parents think they're going to school and they're making their way to the airport. SubhanAllah. This is the guts of certain teens now. Right? Which means that they, they, they have taken the incorrect methodology, hook, line and sinker. And that is why uh, some of these young people that approach me and, 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 I, and, and, I, and, and I try to make clear to them, try to make clear to them uh, the impermissibility of doing so and aligning yourself with incorrect methodologies and to fear Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and hold, upon, uh, hold, hold unto the way of, 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 of the pious predecessors. And don't fall prey to shaitan. Because shaitan, my dear brothers and sisters, he has no problem. Shaitan, he will either stop you from worshipping Allah, and if he can't, then he will make you worship Allah so much that you will enter into innovation. He has no problem with this. Shaitan has no problem with this. Shaitan is deceptive. Shaitan and his army is deceptive. Please, I apologize that we've sidetracked a little bit, but this is of absolute importance, especially given the audience I have in front of me, mashallah. Inshallah, a majority of you, uh, you know, uh, you have people. You have a sphere and you have people that you are responsible over. So, um, shaitan deceives. He will either stop you worshipping Allah, or he will make you worship Allah so much that you will fall into innovation. He will not leave you upon the middle way. And a lot of the youth who, are, who, who, who have become uh, apologetic to extreme ideologies, if you look at their past, they were astray. They never entered their teens upon guidance and worshiping Allah. Uh, I'm not saying there's no acceptances, but I'm saying the majority that, that I have had that, that 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 I have been tested. I considered it a test from Allah Subhanallah when when certain youth write to me or, or uh, you know uh, visit me during some of the programs during my travels and actually show apologetic kind of uh, beliefs towards extremism and, and and that incorrect belief, right? If you look at the majority of these people. They don't come from homes that are practicing, and they never entered their teens while practicing. And now they received some form of guidance, perhaps from a certain speaker, perhaps from a certain talk, and uh, they feel motivated to worship Allah more. So what happens when shaitan has lost keeping them off worship? He starts attacking them uh, in their guidance. 
right? So before they can gain knowledge, he pushes them into action. And that's why Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala in Surah Al-Fatiha, coming back to Surah Al-Fatiha, Allah says, غير المغضوب عليهم ولا الضالين Allah teaches us to seek protection from المغضوب عليهم, those that Allah is angry with. Those who had knowledge and they never practiced. ولا الضالين, those who practiced without knowledge. So we say those who uh, now want to practice Islam and, 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 and they, 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 they're practicing it faster than they should because they haven't received the knowledge to mandate their practice. We say this is a means of you becoming from Bali, uh, from the misguided. Those who practice and never had knowledge. And they, Allah cited them as astray. Right? Allah cited uh, a group of people on one side of the path and cited others on the other side of the path. The other side of the path. And he only praised those who are on the path. Right? So this is what we find from some of these youth. Now when I, when, when I engage them, uh, what I've also seen is they, they come up uh, with uh, misconceptions of quote-unquote certain other speakers. And they say, but speaker so-and-so says that uh, this methodology is accepted. Billah. May Allah guide the ummah and especially guide the scholars and guide the students of knowledge. It's fitna, I tell you. Right? So what happens is, uh, they say, well, we've received this, so what makes your view uh, more correct in light of the view of another graduate, for example? This is, subhanAllah, this is how teenagers speak nowadays. You know, when we used to listen to our, our teachers teach us, uh, we used to have a level of, um, you know, we, we used to have that uh, level of fear and, and, and not let our tongue run loose and not speak something that, you know, uh, comes across even in the least as disrespectful. No, today you find teenagers debating. I have had it firsthand. They'll tell me, so, you know, who are your teachers? And who are you to say this in light of such an, uh, another person saying that, you know, it's permissible? And uh, that is why I firmly believe, my dear brothers and sisters, we live in an age where there's certain fatawa which should never ever be followed unless it comes from a fiqh council. And Allah knows best. Unless it comes from a fiqh council. And perhaps uh, Hisham can write this in big on the whiteboard. There's certain fatawa in this day and age which should not be followed irrespective of who says it unless it comes out from a reputable fiqh council. And alhamdulillah the ummah is blessed today with fiqh councils because in terms of fiqh and its development there's a great revival in this day and age. Uh, the revival of the method of the Hanafis. Right? The scholars are that the Hanafi method was based upon shura. It wasn't uh, Abu Hanifa just making the ruling himself. But Abu Hanifa would sit with his most senior students and he would run a research kind of council. And then they would uh, come to, uh, bring, in the next sitting, they would bring their results and he would listen to them. And as a shura, decisions would be made. Or fiqh resolutions would come about. This happens today, walillahi alhamd. We have great fiqh councils that are not uh, exclusive, no, inclusive of scholars all over the world. And my message is, uh, there are certain fatawa that in this day and age should not be followed irrespective of who says it. I'm not, this doesn't mean that the person who said it is not respected, uh, respected and, re, respe- and, and is not respectable and this person doesn't have knowledge. No, I am saying for the sake of maslaha and for the sake of benefit, even if that person is most knowledgeable and from the rasikhuna fil ilm established upon the correct methodology, we should not follow certain fatawa except if it comes from a fiqh council. Right? And by default, the rasikhuna fil ilm, they belong to fiqh councils. And by Allah, I have not in my research come across any fiqh council, 
any fiqh council, right, that has uh, endorsed uh, extremist methodologies or endorsed the way of ISIS to, in, in particular, right? Uh, and in general, extremist policies, I haven't. And in light of that, we should take guidance from that. In light of that, we should take guidance from that. Um, so if, if, if a fiqh council, uh, there's certain fatwa, as I said, that should not be followed unless a fiqh council uh, passes that fatwa. And from them is this issue here. Should I go join ISIS? Should I go join group A and group B and group C? Do not take a fatwa even from Sajid Umar. Even from Sajid Umar. Unless Sajid Umar is telling you what a fiqh council has said. Because this is one of those red fatwa, as I call it. You know, it's 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 uh, red zone fatwa. If, if if you know if, if we want to take fatwa and put them in zones, red zone, orange zone, green zone, right? <laughs> in terms of red zone, this fatwa is a red zone fatwa. It should not come from anyone, including Sajid Umar, unless the Fiqh Council passes it. Unless Sajid Umar or that person is telling you the view of the Fiqh Council. And today, the major Fiqh Councils, none of them have endorsed the methodology of ISIS, nor have supported it, nor have been apologetic to it, rather they have warned against it. And if that is not knowledge for us, then I don't know what knowledge is. And Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala knows best. So uh, apologies, brothers and sisters, for uh, you know sidetracking a little bit. But alhamdulillah, um, perhaps uh, this message is uh, extremely beneficial to us right now. Uh, today and it is, it is in some way or form uh, narrated to the course of study because indeed this course of study is uh, based upon the Quran and Sunnah which is a form of guidance for us. The Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam said in an authentic hadith in both Sahih al-Bukhari and Sahih Muslim in the hadith of Abu Hurairah radiyallahu an if my memory serves me right تَرَقْتُ فِيكُمْ مَا إِنْ تَمَسَّكْتُمْ بِهِ لَنْ تَضِلُّ بَعْدِ أَبَدًا Kitab Allah wa Sunnati I'm left with you two things. If you hold steadfast upon them both you will never ever go astray. These two things are the Quran and the Sunnah. I love you all for the sake of Allah. Let's take a quick break, a six-minute break. Insha'Allah, we will resume at 9.55 a.m. Mecca time. Hada wallahu a'lam. Wa sallallahu wa sallam wa baraka ala nabiyyina Muhammad wa ala alihi wa sahbihi ajma'in. Bismillah ar-Rahman ar-Rahim. Alhamdulillah. Wa salatu wa salamu ala rasulillah wa ala alihi wa sahbihi wa man wala. Assalamu alaykum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. Um, welcome back, brothers and sisters. So just before the break, we were... Uh, we sidetracked a little bit and that sidetrack happened because we were discussing uh, the importance of being just. And even with the non-Muslims, uh, we should be uh, just. And then that uh, particular discussion flowered uh, into our discussion pertaining to extremist ideologies and that these extremist ideologies do not study uh, Islamic instruction based on other Islamic instruction. Uh, and thus uh, we have... Uh, this disaster, may Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala protect us. So with regards to the non-Muslims, no, we should be just. And Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala tells us that those who do not uh, attack our religion and prevent us from worshipping Allah, then uh, Allah doesn't uh, tell us uh, not to be kind to them and not to be just with them. No, we should be kind with them and we should be just with them. We should never forget that they are uh, a creation that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has created as well. And because of, we love Allah and we uh, we, we, we worship one Allah, then um, there has to be an element of humanity, right? Because Allah has created them, they are human beings as well. And for those who don't know, this is why Islam you know, tells us to be kind to the trees, to the animals, uh, to the ground. We shouldn't walk on the ground hard because all this is the creation of Allah. You know, respect it because Allah created it. And this is what a human being does who is attached to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. 
When you have this attachment to Allah, then you know, you know, every step of every second is a journey uh, consistent with you being with Allah Subhanahu wa Taala, and thus um, your external, your external and your internal behave accordingly. Right, even though our external is a result of our internal, as our scholars teach us, that whatever we see on the outside is a reflection of the reality of the inside. Um, but when you are with Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala all the time, you never ever forget, right? You never ever forget that, you know what, uh, this earth is the creation of Allah. Let me walk on it softly, you know, that these trees are the creation of Allah. Let me act with these trees diligently. Uh, these animals are the creation of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Let me be with these animals diligently. Uh, human beings are a noble creation of Allah. وَلَقَدْ كَرَّمْنَا بَنِي آدَمْ Allah has honored the child of Adam, the human being. Right? Uh, and um, Allah has made uh, the human being even more honored and given the human being a placement above many of the uh, creation of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So never ever forget that brothers and sisters that whilst yes you do hate um, you know Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala being disrespected. We hate it. No doubt. Nobody is telling us here to become uh, apologist with regards to um, you know uh, beliefs that are disrespectful to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Beliefs that the, the skies uh, want to crack because of. Don't get me wrong brothers and sisters. Right? Don't get me wrong. Um, but in the same breath, we're saying that Islam teaches us to have a balance. That whilst we hate that disrespect to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, and we never offer this form of mujamala, or we, we try and, and, and make excuses for, for, for wrong belief, uh, in the same breath we understand that um, this wrong belief doesn't nullify this per- the person who holds it being a human being. And this is where we fall short. Right? We, we sort of have uh, our, you know, an inability or in, uh, a mental inability to differentiate between things and put things in their places. So we say, well, you know, this person has this belief that is disrespectful to Allah and then this should necessitate us forgetting that they are a human being. Absolutely not. Study the Islamic ayat, uh, study the Quran and Sunnah properly with a reputable scholar and they will teach you how to understand uh, instruction in light of other instruction and you will clearly see the balance. So, um, good does come from non-Muslims, right? It doesn't mean they have zero good and and, and, uh, evidence of that is in these foster mothers who foster mothered the Prophet ﷺ like Thuwaiba, like uh, Halima Sa'diyya. And um, with Halima Sa'diyya, um, it's actually documented that she was the foster mother of Abu Sufyan as well. And um, Abu Sufyan, we know, was a fierce enemy of the Prophet ﷺ until he became... Uh, a Muslim during Fath Mecca or during uh, the conquest uh, of Mecca, and we learn from this brothers and, uh, brothers and sisters that you know being good and bad is not hereditary. Some people say, well, it looks like it's a hereditary thing, you know, uh, because we do know that through breastfeeding, you 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 gain from the breast milk certain um, um, certain traits, right? Uh, because you you have um, we know that breast milk. 
uh, helps boost the immune system and uh, it brings with it certain traits that bottled milk doesn't, for example. And here we have Halima al-Sa'diya having breastfed Abu Sufyan and having breastfed the Prophet ﷺ, which teaches us that guidance is not uh, hereditary. And we also learn this from the fact uh, that um, Rasulullah ﷺ was born um, you know, and, and had a lineage of people who worshipped idols and he sallallahu alayhi wasallam did not so in, in our previous lessons we learned that we're not a product of nature or nurture we're a product of uh, our natural disposition uh, yes our environments do play a part uh, but by default we have been born with elements of guidance or with the element of guidance and today we uh, furthering that discussion and saying that it's uh, you know guidance and and misguidance is not hereditary it's not hereditary. If you look at the, the, the brothers of Yusuf alayhi salam who wanted to throw him into, who wanted to kill him at first uh, and then abducted him and threw him into the bottom of a well and left him for dead, then, uh, or, or left him to be picked up by caravans, then the, these brothers were, were sons of a prophet. Let's not forget, right? They were sons of a prophet. So guidance and misguidance is not uh, hereditary. From uh, the people that uh, looked after the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wasallam was. Um, a, a, a person that was considered to be honored and uh, this person's name was uh, or she was known as Um Ayman Baraka al Habashiya. Um Ayman Baraka al Habashiya. And the reason why I choose to mention you this particular point from uh, Ibn al Qayyim Rahmatullahi Alayh's mention is because. Uh, this uh, person, Um Ayman Baraka al Habashiya, she has a very famous uh, story um, in the seerah of the Prophet, and especially when she passed away because um, she was the one who cried. Uh, she was the one who cried um, after the death of the Prophet. Uh, and uh, what happened was when she cried, um, Abu Bakr and Umar radiallahu anhum ajma'in uh, they went and um, you know to try and console her and they actually said to her that why are you are you crying you know uh, Allah has chosen the best for his messenger sallallahu alayhi wasallam so she responded to them amazing words and again this teaches us the presence of females in the ummah especially for those who say well you know Islam doesn't promote uh, female scholarship and, and doesn't promote the views of females this is incorrect this you know the view of um ayman or the statement of um ayman uh, uh, really shakes any man who reads that statement allahu akbar right because uh, when abu bakr and umar radiyallahu anhuma went to her and said why have you cried you know allah has chosen the best for the messenger she uh, said radiyallahu anha as they tried to console her that indeed i know what you're talking about what you're trying to say i already know uh, and the reason why i'm crying is because uh, revelation has come to an end the connection of the skies to earth has closed allahu akbar look at that thought brothers and sisters look at that thought Honestly, I mean, uh, <laughs> uh, this story is enough, is enough to be motivational for the females and the males. And it's enough to shake the males, I would add. That look at this, subhanallah. And that is why um, she was mentioned in, in Sahih Muslim uh, under the, the chapter of Al-Fadail. Right? After the, uh, under the chapter of Al-Fadail. You know, the honored ones. The honored ones. She was mentioned under the chapter of the honored ones that the Ummah considered her honorable because uh, of this particular narration, citing her to have said uh, this 
uh, amazing thing. And she and, and even in her statement, she shook Abu Bakr radiallahu an and Umar radiallahu an. And these were the giants of the ummah, right? So uh, take this, my dear sisters, and Facebook it and tweet, uh, tweet it, right? Facebook it if we can make it a, a, a verb. <laughs> Is that allowed, Hisham? Can we make Facebook a verb? Um, Facebook it and tweet it and, and teach the ummah. Teach the ummah, right? Teach the ummah of the giants uh, in Islamic history and, and indeed from those giants were, were females. Then we go to uh, the Prophet ﷺ becoming a prophet. And we said that you know, uh, he became a prophet at 40. Uh, but this discussion here is regarding the revelation that made him a prophet. Now we have the, the narration of Aisha radiallahu anha, and in it she says that um, the first revelation was Iqra bismi rabbika alladhi khalaq. And then we have another hadith, uh, narration, and that is the narration of Jabir radiallahu anha. And he says that the first narration was Ya ayyuhal muddathir. Right? So uh, she says radiallahu anha that. Uh, the opening narration or, or the first revelation was the opening ayat of Surah Al-Alaq. And Jabir says, no, the first revelation was uh, the opening ayat uh, of Al-Muddathir. Ya ayyuhal Muddathir. So this discussion is a discussion found in a science known as ulu, uh, Usul Al-Tafsir. Usul Al-Tafsir. Right? The principles of Tafsir. And it's amazing. All our sciences have principles. Fiqh has principles known as Usul Al-Fiqh. Right? Uh, and then we have hadith. Hadith has principles known as usul al hadith. Right? Fiqh has princ- uh, uh, principles known as usul al fiqh, as we've said. And we have usul al hadith. Tafsir has principles known as usul al tafsir. The Arabic language has principles known as nahwa and sarf. Right? Uh, Arabic grammar and morphology. Right? We, we have all these principles. And just following on from our earlier discussion, we need today to have principles of thought. Principles of thinking. Principles of thought. And yes, the Sharia has those principles. They might not be uh, clear and cut. We need to uh, extract them in light of, of, of evidences, in light of ayat and sunnah. But it's, today, is, I, I genuinely feel if we had uh, a conference dedicated towards um, the principles of Islamic thought, or the principles of thought, this would be a, an amazing conference to have in the century. The Ummah is in dire need of it. The Ummah is in dire need of, of it. The principles of thinking, so that we know how to think properly. And it becomes documented, and, and printed, and published. And Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala uh, knows best. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala uh, knows best. So, we have uh, these two narrations, and, and as I said, this discussion is in a science known as Usul al-Tafsir. Usul al-Tafsir. So what was the first revelation? What's clear, brothers and sisters, is that the first revelation was Iqra. Was Iqra. And that was when uh, the angel came to the cave. Right? The archangel Jibreel alayhi salam came to the cave. This is, is clear. As for the hadith of Jabir, as for the hadith of Jabir, the scholars explain that um, Jabir was explaining from his understanding. But Aisha radiallahu anha tells us what the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wasallam said. So this makes clear that Aisha radiallahu anha statement is preferred over the statement of Jabir. Now, uh, another thing that supports uh, the hadith of Aisha being correct, and that is that the first revelation was Iqra' bismi rabbika alladhi khalaq, is that uh, Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam was, or became a prophet, became a prophet when Jibreel visited him, because Jibreel doesn't visit uh, except prophets. 
right? With revelation. So he came with revelation. But uh, at the time when Iqra was revealed, there was no instruction to convey, right? But that instruction to convey came with Ya ayyuhal muddathir. Ya ayyuhal muddathir. So the scholars say that the Prophet ﷺ became a prophet with Iqra bismi rabbikal ladhi khalaq. And he became a messenger with Ya ayyuhal muddathir. Qum fa'anzir. Right? So, uh, oh you wrapped in, 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 in garments. Qum fa'anzir. Stand up and propagate. So, um, this further supports uh, the hadith of Aisha radiallahu anha, and that is that the, the, the first revelation was Iqra bismi rabbikal ladhi khalaq. Now, when we ponder over this, my dear brothers and sisters, then we again learn the all-important lesson of knowledge coming before action. Knowledge coming before action. Because um, Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa received knowledge first before he received a command towards action. And this is just for those who ponder. It's called fiqh as-seerah. To put the, the, you know, the, the fiqh of the seerah, understanding from the seerah. For those who ponder, we learn this all-important lesson. That knowledge comes before action. Because Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala gave His Messenger knowledge first. And then allowed Him time to ponder over it. Remember, He went back to Khadija. Then they went to Waraqa bin Nawfal. Right? Uh, then Allah revealed to him, Ayya ayyuhal muddathir. Now the command came to act. Because you have knowledge, now act upon that knowledge. Um, so remember this lesson, my dear brothers and sisters, and that's, this is why we have this class, because mashallah, many of you run Islamic organizations, and, and, and you, uh, you run circles of knowledge. It's important that you equip yourself with knowledge. Uh, today we see a trend whereby we have many Islamic organizations run by people who are not diligent students of knowledge. And thus there's a lot of mistakes. And these mistakes are dangerous because communities look at... Uh, what Islamic organizations do. And because an Islamic organization is doing it, what happens? What happens? They say, well, it must be permitted. It should be permissible. Because that's an Islamic organization. Right? They, they practice interming, intermingling in what they do, so our weddings can, be, can have intermingling. What's wrong? That's an Islamic organization. Right? Uh, this is what happens. And I told you earlier that Imam al-Shatibi rahmatullahi alayhi divided makru. This is makru. We're not talking about, talking about something haram. We're saying he divided makru, that which is considered undesirable, into five parts. One part of it being that which is haram for certain people to do, which might be makru for the others to do. Right? Because if those certain people do it, the masses will take it as a norm. And makru will be something normal in society. And this is from, from fiqh, brothers and sisters. And maqasid. And this shows this, you know, the, the fiqh of Imam al-Shatibi rahmatullahi alayhi. He mentions this in his, in, in his al-Muwafaqat. Right? He mentions this uh, in his book, and, which is a book of usul and maqasid. And he mentions this here. And, and this applies in, in, to the Islamic organizations today. Whereby the masses take guidance from what they do. It, it, the, the, the Islamic organization might not have a statement about it, but the fact that they do it, the masses take it as a norm. And if this is the case of something disliked, that it can be haram for some people, because we will be creating a society that practices makru, and this is against the objectives of the sharia, uh, then uh, imagine what would, you know, what would be the case with, with, with outright haram. What would be the case with outright haram? Right? That some Islamic organizations practice, because the, the people at the top, they're not established students of knowledge. They love the deen, they, they, they want this khair, and you know, 
they want to do good, and Alhamdulillah, Allah blessed them to have the resources, so they started up an Islamic organization. But then, uh, because they lacked guidance, they went about it making mistakes. So, uh, I'm not saying stop, continue, but definitely work on getting uh, established students of knowledge, at, uh, of knowledge at least attached to your organization. You know, create a shura board, right? Create that board of, of uh, you know, uh, the, the representatives that you take guidance and counsel from, right? Uh, definitely try and get an established student of knowledge attached to your institute that you bounce ideas off and be willing to listen to them, right? And, and ask them for evidence, question them, and that's fine. But take guidance. Don't just go ahead and do things. And don't take things for granted that this seems okay. No, you're going to run a conference, take your whole conference listing, right? Take the scope of the conference and hand it over to them. Email it to them, uh, sit with them, right? You know, you have a project scope, right? So we have a conference scope that, that, that discusses the whole conference from A to Z. And tell them, can you look at this and can you endorse it for us? And the scholar will say, Alhamdulillah, this 99% good, but this 1% is to be changed. And this is, this is why, you know, even in fiqh, in fiqh it's not enough for you to just study the books of fiqh to be able to pass a fatwa. Understand this. The scholars across the centuries of Islam have said this. In fact, Ibn al-Qayyim rahmatullahi alayhi says that a scholar who takes a rule from a book of fiqh from the middle centuries of Islam or the beginning centuries of Islam and he, hook, line and sinker, he takes that and applies it today, then he is misguided and he has misguided the people and he's worse than the doctor that takes uh, old age medicine uh, to treat people today. Right? And Ibn al-Qayyim passed away a long time ago, brothers and sisters. And that's why there's a difference between studying fiqh and passing a fatwa. Fatwa is different. Because fatwa is a, is, is a robust science that entails applying the fiqh ruling in such a way that is conducive for tomorrow as well. Right? Because the mufti has to look at the ma'alat. The mufti has to look at the ma'alat, has to look at what has to look at the, the, the situation that will come about tomorrow as a result of this fatwa today. As, as a result of applying this fiqh today. Right? And that's why sometimes the mufti will not advise people towards a sunnah. If he knows or, or genuinely feels that if he makes them practice the sunnah, a haram will come about. Like for example, the community becoming split. Right? This is fatwa. That's why nobody should mess around first with the sciences of the sharia, with the sources of the sharia, with the knowledge of the sharia. Secondly, definitely no one should mess around with, and forgive the colloquial English, I know it's colloquial, <laughs> but no one should mess around with the application of the sharia. Nobody should mess around with the application of the sharia. And that's why it's not easy just to say mufti so-and-so, mufti so-and-so. No. No, no. There's, you know, Imam Malik never used to pass fatwa just like this. Imam Ahmed never used to pass fatwa just like this. In fact, Imam, Imam Ahmed never passed fatwa when he was in Iraq until Imam Shafi'i left. This is what the scholars say and document. That he refused to pass fatwa. Imam Ahmed, in the presence of Imam Shafi'i, Rahmatullahi alayhim ajma'in. Ameen. May Allah grant us this understanding. Yani, today it's about titles. Allahul Musta'an. You know? And yes, no, no doubt, certain titles should be there because we live in an age where you know, titles come about and, 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 and sadly, if you don't have certain letters in front of your name, then people don't tend to gauge, uh, you know, respect your knowledge. Or if you don't have the title before your name, then people don't respect your knowledge. And to be honest, you know, I'm not saying we shouldn't call people sheikh and so on and so forth. No, with, with respect, it should be there. 
uh, and even the person being called a sheikh should uh, fear Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and have the adab uh, of the title uh, and you know not go uh, I, I def- it's not from the way of the salah for people to call themselves sheikh or call themselves mufti it's not from the adab yes some people do it today as, as a norm and as I said in light of uh, respect not being given unless you do so for example um, like today we call a doctor a doctor if he has an academic doctorate degree, we say doctor so-and-so, right? He's earned that title. Or uh, if we, even if he's a medical doctor, we see certain norms, they, they don't call them by the name. They say doctor so-and-so. We'll call them doctor. Because you, you respect them given the importance that they have to society. So yes, uh, with regards to that, then yes. Yes, we must uh, refer to our mashaykh as sheikh and respect them because definitely Allah has given them from the inheritance of Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. But it wasn't from the way of the scholars to call themselves Sheikh so and so, right? Uh, but yes, again, in defense of my, my fellow du'at who, uh, you know, who, who might uh, introduce themselves as that, then we think good of our du'at and good of our scholars and they're only doing so because a certain culture mandates that that happens. So again, this is not an attack on anybody, but this is just to make clear to us all here, especially some of the students of knowledge here. Uh, we must understand this. In fact, as you all know, I was blessed to graduate as a judge, perhaps the first Western judge, uh, Western person to graduate as a judge from the Institute in Saudi Arabia, uh, as I've been told, and Allah knows best. Uh, in our training, we were told of, of, of uh, a story of a previous judge, the father of uh, Sheikh Saleh bin Humayd. Uh, Hafidahullah Sheikh Salih the Imam of the Haram I was blessed to be taught by him as well uh, alhamd, Very intellectual man um, And perhaps one of the best teachers that I've had In terms of tarbiyah And in terms of his application of a teacher He really reminds you of the scholars of old You know, He would literally come to class with These big fat books in his hand With you know, old pages you know, Where you know the pages have been read and he would actually uh, discuss your questions in light of that which is in the book and his ability to find the, po- you know, the information in the book. All that was amazing. It's very clear that he really prepared for his lesson before he came to class. Perhaps I can tell you that on another day. Some of uh, you know, my uh, amazing uh, stories with some of our mashaykh. So the father of Sheikh bin Humayd, very knowledgeable man. He was even known as, as the Sheikh of the Hanabila. Uh, rahmatullahi alayhi. And um, it, say, it says that in one of his judiciary uh, uh, proceedings, uh, a person came uh, com- uh, with a complaint. Obviously, the plaintiff came in and the plaintiff said that, you know what, this is my land and this person has taken it. So the sheikh asked the defendant for evidence. And back in the day in Saudi Arabia, obviously, it wasn't as advanced as now where you have the municipality set up and everything is computerized and you've got the country mapped out, every piece of land, so on and so forth. It wasn't like that. So people gen- generally would you know, respect people's right to land based on tazkiyah or endorsements, even from scholars. So this person produced a paper. And this paper was signed or supposedly signed by uh, the previous mufti of Saudi Arabia, the mufti before Sheikh bin Baz, rahmatullahi alayhi. Right, um, and he was uh, he was the teacher of Sheikh Bin Baz and very respectful and respectable as well. So he produced this paper in front of the judge, the father of uh, Sheikh Saleh, and uh, Sheikh Saleh then closed the pro- or, or uh, postponed the proceeding uh, because he wanted obviously to study the evidence. So Sheikh, the, the Sheikh wrote to many of the students 
of uh, Mufti Ibrahim, who was the previous uh, Mufti, and said, look, can you just validate the handwriting here? Validate the handwriting. Is this the handwriting of the Sheikh? So his closest students validated it, said, yes, this is the handwriting of, of the Sheikh. But something still wasn't right with the judge. So in any case, when uh, the next uh, proceeding happened, um, and the plaintiff and the defendant stood in front of the judge, uh, the judge turned to the defendant and told the defendant, look, I'm giving you one chance to tell the truth. You know what you have done, but I'm giving you one chance to tell the truth. Is this land yours? Now, obviously, the defendant now shook, obviously. You know, he wasn't expecting this. Uh, because now somebody by default, if he's done wrong, and then he's uh, confronted with this kind of an approach, then by default, you're going to start feeling that, hold on a second here, maybe I've been caught out, right? This is what happens. So out of fear, the defendant said, yes, no, it's, it's, it's not my land, and this paper is forged. The paper is forged, meaning the handwriting of the sheikh is forged. Now look, the closest students to the sheikh didn't know it was forged, which means that the forging was so, uh, you know, professional. Subhanallah. The forging was so professional. And let me tell you, you know, you've seen doctor's handwriting. If you see the writing of some of the mashayikh, it's like doctor's handwriting, really. Uh, really, it, it is like that. Right? So the forging was so professional. So the defendant asked the sheikh that, how did you know? Asked the judge, how did you know? So the judge said, that to be honest, I didn't know. But at the end of the letter, the sign of said Sheikh uh, so and so. And it's not from the norm of the Mashaykh to write their names as Sheikh so and so. It's not from the norms. Right? So uh, that's where the doubt came in. And that's where I doubted this being a letter from the Sheikh, from the, from the previous Mufti. Amazing, right? Brothers and sisters, what do you think of the story? And this teaches you, you know, uh, to be a mufti and to be a judge. You know, when, when, when uh, I, I was blessed to study with the, the picked judges of 2010, right? These were, well, you know, I was picked. And I, I know the, the interview process that happens, I know how they were picked. Because obviously the Ministry of Justice comes in and picks them from class, uh, picks the, the, the graduating class and takes them for an interview. And then... You know, if your name comes up that you pick, then Allah help you because you have to be, you have to do the work. Meaning no one who's picked to be a judge can run away. If you refuse, then you're punished for two years where they hold your certificates and you can't get any other form of employment. So you have to be a judge. So I was picked with the 2010 judges. Alhamdulillah, I was put in the class with them. And it was an amazing three-year journey. Our time in the courts, uh, our training, our lessons. It was, it, it was amazing. But one of the things that the mashayikh who were also judges who were coming to teach us, or the majority of them were judges, uh, would always tell us is that, you know what, to be a judge is not just about have, having an academic ability. Having the ability to read the text of the people before, the scholars before, and, uh, you know, uh, understanding that text to a certain degree. No, to be a judge, it requires shakhsiyah. It requires a character to be a judge. A character to be a mufti. And you need to have to a certain level, guts, if I, if I may use that particular term. Whereby, um, you can take the work of the scholars of the past, but you have the character to apply today. And the character of applying today refers to what we've been discussing earlier. This ability of uh, placing a ruling in light of uh, tomorrow. In light of tomorrow, what will be the consequences of uh, this ruling that I place now? So, this is where we should respect our scholars. 
we should respect our scholars. But the moral of the story was the judge doubted the authenticity of the, the letter because uh, the letter was signed off as Sheikh Mufti so-and-so. Right? Uh, <laughs> so based on that, the character of the judge, he, uh, Allah guided his heart. He saw that and subhanAllah, just that little mistake. And that's why they say there's no crime except, there's no flawless crime. There's always a crime that has a flaw. And a good judge will pick up that flaw. A good judge will pick up that flaw. May Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala grant us insights, you know. And this is important, especially when we try and arbitrate between people. We cannot be naive and we shouldn't be taken for a ride. Um, especially parents today, don't be taken for a ride. Don't be naive. Run your home in an effective way. Run your home in light of tomorrow. And have the guts to make the necessary decisions and put things into place. Right? And uh, again, this is why we talk, you know, that uh, we spoke about every science having its principles. You know, uh, the scholars used to say, I think it was Imam Al-Qushayri, rahmatullahi alayhi. He used to say that the people of Usul Al-Fiqh, they are the, the quwad. Um, they are the generals. He used to refer to the, the scholars of Usul Al-Fiqh as the generals of every time and, and place. Why? Because they have the principles. They have the principles that allow them to rule in light of today whilst taking into consideration tomorrow. Usul al-fiqh gives you that ability. I'm not talking about academic usul al-fiqh, I'm talking about understood usul al-fiqh. Yes, we have the academics who know the views of the scholars and what they've said and the evidences and the rebuttals and so on and so forth, but no, I'm talking about those who have become substantiated with the science. In any case, you know, I, I pray this makes your, it, it wettens your taste buds and makes you want to, you know, uh, seek knowledge uh, full time. Allah knows best. And as I, I, and as I said, brothers and sisters, um, I don't want to confuse those who, mashallah, are going to become doctors and lawyers and so on and so forth. Absolutely not. Um, as I said, the ummah needs you all. The ummah needs you all. The ummah is in need of practicing Muslims who represent all the faculties of life at the highest level. At the highest level. You know, I, it would be the coolness of my eyes to see a Muslim with his beard, you know, in the best hospital in the world, walking the aisles of that hospital with a group of young interns running behind him and around him with their notepads or their iPads and asking him questions. And as he's walking, they're running behind him because they respect him and they want what he has. And as they run behind him, he, he walks out of the hospital, leaving his gloves. He's just walked out of the most amazing in-depth surgery, which lasted hours. And he leaves his gloves in quarantine. And he walks out the hospital and they rush with him. And he crosses the road. And he enters the masjid, which he built with his money, alhamd, because it's the time for salah. And he walks right to the front of the masjid. And he leads the salah because he's hafid al-Qur'an. And he has the fiqh of salah. Allahu Akbar. Imagine how powerful this would be for Islam and the Muslims. Right? Imagine how powerful if this vision could come true, brothers and sisters. Allahu Akbar. How amazing would this be for Islam and the Muslims? And then he walks out the masjid. And the interns follow him back to the hospital. Asking him questions. Hanging on to every word that leaves his mouth. Why? Because they want it. Not looking down at him because he has a beard. No, respecting him for that beard. Allahu Akbar. Imagine if we had these kind of people representing us at the medical level. Imagine if we had these type of people representing us at an educational level. Right? The biggest educational conferences of the best universities of the world, two-thirds of the panel are practicing Muslims with beards. Allahu Akbar. 
And when they start their presentation to the thousands in front of them, they started with Bismillahir Rahmanir Rahim, Inna Alhamdulillah, Allahu Akbar. Imagine this, my dear brothers and sisters. Imagine a world which had this. Imagine a world which had this. Right? So don't get me wrong, I'm not telling everybody to run to Medina or run to Riyadh or run to Adarul Ulum and so on and so forth. No. I'm telling you that the Ummah needs high level representation on all levels. And Alhamdulillah, this is one of the reasons why I'm having this class. To teach those who are seeking excellence in the other fields to represent Islam for the sake of Allah in the other fields, to give them an ability to have some grounding with, with that knowledge which every Muslim should have, Alhamdulillah. Right? Sadly today, subhanAllah, the biggest Muslim journalists that are coming out on TV, they, not, they, don't, they don't have the sunnah look. They don't dress the sunnah dress. And if they did, they will be looked down upon. Right? So yes, we do have certain Muslims representing the ummah, but they're not representing the ummah the way the ummah should be represented. Unfortunately. In fact, subhanAllah, we've seen Muslims who've gone astray, who speak a message that is insultive to Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. They insult Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. When they come on TV and they start, you know, uh, in a derogatory way, speaking about imams and speaking about teachers and speaking about madaris. And they're Muslims, right? And the non-Muslims would love to have these people on their show. Because obviously, uh, the media seems to be serving a certain uh, directive. Allahul Musta'an, there's prejudice, no doubt. You know, Islamophobia didn't become what it became just by mistake, No. There's, there's, there's a clear concerted, you know, concerted effort. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala guide uh, the world, guide the people, you know, and, and uh, may Allah guide us all. Ameen. Ya Rabbil Alameen. I, I don't want to take this into any political discussion or, or take us seriously off track, but you get the gist of what I'm saying. But coming back to the point, my dear brothers and sisters, imagine a world where we had Muslims representing Islam as Muslims proud to be Muslims. Imagine somebody winning, you know, uh, as you know, I, I, I come from a background of being a golfer, right? And I, I used to watch the, the, uh, the masters on TV growing up. And you know, you're thinking to yourself, Alhamdulillah, bless me with, with, with golf. As a young person, I was uh, a junior golfer. I had a junior golfing passport as well. You know, when I was in Dubai and I was sitting with Hisham and Abdul Mateen, I was just telling them this, that, you know, I was actually, uh, I, I used to represent club uh, and school. Um, at golf, and then you look at the the iconic, the iconic golf tournaments like the Masters, for example, that just finished now in in, in America. It hap- it's the first Master, uh, it's the first golf major. You know, like in tennis, you have Wimbledon, you have the French Open, you have the Australian Open, the American Open. In golf, you have the Masters, uh, then you have the British Open, and you have the American PGA uh, as well. Um, you, there's there, there's four major. Uh, tournaments in the year that you know that's the peak you want to win that and I was thinking to myself imagine you know playing beating an entire field of over a hundred golfers breaking all records at the golf course with the lowest scores right because in golf the lower the score the better right so with the lowest scores and then you on the final hole in front of the crowd and the audience and the masses with your beard, looking after the sunnah, your trousers above your ankles or, or not below your ankles, walillahilhamd, right? You, you, you win the tournament, you put in that putt, alhamdulillah. And the world is cheering for you, Muslims and Muslims. And at the prize giving when you pick up the big trophy and you wear your green jacket, because with the masters, if you win, you get a green jacket. So you wear your green jacket and you start off by saying, Bismillahirrahmanirrahim, inna alhamdulillah. نَحْمَدُهُ وَنَسْتَعِينُهُ وَنَسْتَهْدِهِ And you, you give this introduction. You make Islam normal to the people. 
Alhamdulillah. Today, sadly, the people making the TV headlines are the people practicing extreme forms, which you can't even call Islam. So, brothers and sisters, please, you know, especially for our young, our young ones, right? Please, please, please go and become the best. Go and become the best. Don't just become a lawyer. Be the most recognized best lawyer with an understanding that the world needs and requires. Go and become a great mind. Don't just become any mind. You're a Muslim. You're a person of La ilaha illallah. This kalima has given you an unprecedented potential. Go and tap into it. Don't just become a doctor. Go and become the biggest mind in the medical fraternity. Don't just become someone in, into education. Go and become the best mind in the educational fraternity. Go and create quantum shifts in how education is seen and practiced. Don't just become uh, you know, a pharmacist. Go and become the best. Go and become the best. Right? Um, be the best. Be the best. Because Allah gave us the best. I told you in our earliest lessons that Allah, Allah gave us the best book via the best messenger, uh, to the best messenger, via the best angel, in the best language, on the best night, in the best month, in the best of all places, Allahu Akbar. And in this book called the Ummah, the best of all nations. Kuntum khaira ummatin ukhrijat linnas. You are the best of all nations. Allahu Akbar. So if you are the best, don't settle for, me, settle for mediocrity. You're, you're, you, you should aim for the best in everything. And as I qualified my statement the other time, best in effort, of course, result is in the hands of Allah. But if you aim to be the best, imagine what will happen to your dua. Today our duas are so, you know, mediocre, brothers and sisters, because our ambitions are so mediocre. Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam said, Don't ask Allah for Jannah, ask Him for Al-Firdaus al-A'la. Don't just ask Him for Jannah, ask Him for the best Jannah. Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam says, If you see the coming of the hour, you see Qiyamah coming, and you have a sapling in your hand, plant it, plant it, do good, be the best. Take use of it all of your time, brothers and sisters. This is what we want to see in the Ummah. Wallahi, this is, you know, uh, this is the world I would love to see on my deathbed. And all I'm doing is just trying to, in my small way, live a life to try and, and, and create a means for this world to be created. You know, Hisham and Abdul Mateen, these two boys uh, are close to me. Walillahi alham. They always ask Sheikh, so what's your vision? Why do you do what you do? And my vision is, I do what I do because the vision is igniting communities that benefit humanity. And this is what I want. And this is what I want to see. Because, why? Not because I'm somebody special. No, because Allah has said that this is the ummah. We are an ignited ummah that benefit the people. We are here to take from Allah and give to the people. Not to be people begging from the people, which we see the ummah doing today. We, we at that stage where we have to beg the ummah to give us. Why? Because the knowledge is with a certain part of the ummah. I am telling us to become the flag bearers, the, the, you know, the, the, the anchors, the, uh, become the beacons that people want to take from that people want to take from. Even for you running your Islamic institutes, run it with excellence. Run it with excellence, brothers and sisters. Don't run it in a way where there's politics and there's commotion and there's, uh, you know, you lack ihsan in, 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 in your books and then the tax people on you and, so, and the funds that you raise and what you do with the people's money and so on and so forth. Let's fear Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Wallahi, I believe that true fear of Allah necessitates you being the best. I really feel that, my dear brothers and sisters. True fear of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala necessitates you being the best. Really. If you don't have high aspirations, I believe, and Allah knows best, there's a khalal, there's an issue with, 
with, with your fear of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And the God consciousness that you should be upon. So be the best, my dear brothers and sisters. I love you all for the sake of Allah. Wallah, and I speak a message from my heart to you all. And I pray, you know what? That you take this message, you cut this audio, and you do something with it, and send it to as many people that, 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 you, know, that you love as well. Because I would love for this message to reach them. Again, I'm not saying I'm the best. I'm not saying I'm the best speaker to be speaking this, or the best mind to be speaking this. But I'm speaking it because Islam has said this message. I'm only telling you what Islam has said. Right? I'm not saying take it from me because I'm special. I'm saying take it because something special has said it. And that is Islam. May Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala make us from the best. Ameen. Um, so, coming back to revelation, we say that the first revelation was Iqra. And then, uh, and, and by Iqra, the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam became a prophet. And then we have Ya uh, al Muddathir. And through Al Muddathir, the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam became uh, a messenger. Became uh, a messenger, and we learn from this that knowledge comes before uh, action. Uh, in terms of the way the Prophet ﷺ did his da'wah, then it happened in stages as per the teaching from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. First, uh, he became a prophet, as I said, and then he became a messenger. So this was stage two. And when he became a messenger, he was only told to spread Islam to the closest people to him. Ashiratak al aqrabi to the closest people to him. And then after that, he was told uh, to spread the message to his people, to his people. So that was another stage. And then after that, he was told to spread the message to all of the Arabs. And that was another stage. And then the last stage was to spread the message to all of mankind. And we see this towards the end of the life of the messenger, sallallahu alayhi wasallam, when he wrote letters to the other kings. And this is how you respond to those who give you the, uh, you know, a weak misconception. They say the Prophet was a prophet of the Arabs to the Prophet, uh, to the Arabs. The Quran was in Arabic. He spoke Arabic. So Islam is a religion of the Middle East. We say, no, that is incorrect. Uh, the Quran says it's a world religion. Firstly, secondly, uh, we, we, we know that it is because the Prophet invited other nations to Islam towards the end of his life. Uh, and he trained the Sahaba to go and pursue the vision. The vision was Islam reaching the four corners of the world. Right? And the Prophet ﷺ passed away leaving a team in place to go on and um, achieve that vision. Walillahi alhamd. Right? Um, so... Um, what we uh, gain from this, my dear brothers and sisters, is that we should uh, have a strategy in, in everything that we do. The strategy must be there, right? Uh, you know, even when we try to become pious, have a strategy. Don't say you're going to become pious overnight. It's not going to work. No. Start slowly, but start surely. You know, I'm going to leave sins. You can't leave sins overnight. It's impossible, right? But start slowly and start surely. Start leaving one sin. And when that sin is totally off you and you, you don't feel inclined to it again, take on another and take on another. Seeking guidance from Allah, of course. Allah is the most merciful. Allah is the most merciful. Inshallah, He will see, he, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala will witness your sincerity to rid yourself of sins. And Allah will forgive all your sins. Allah is the most merciful, alhamdulillah. Right? But you put that effort in place from yourself. A lot of the times we become overwhelmed. Uh, we go for hajj, we come back, khalas, I'm going to be the best person that walked the face of this earth. But what happens? What happens? Maybe the first week you were good, second week you were average, third week you're back to square one. Because no strategy. After Ramadan, you're going to be the best person. No strategy. Right? Um, 
uh, Ainur is asking for a, a strategy uh, for becoming better. Now, as I said, you know, I normally advise our brothers and sisters to get a book and uh, write in the book, have a section called The Good uh, and The Bad and The Ugly. <laughs> right? Uh, under The Good, write down all the good acts that you're not practicing. That you ideally should be doing. And you, you learn this from the different lessons you, you attend. Right? You go to talks, you go for Jumu'ah, you come for the provisions class, you get onto YouTube, so on and so forth. You learn a lot of good. Write that in the good uh, chapter. Then, in the bad chapter, write down uh, all the minor sins that you do, that you should not be doing. And in the ugly chapter, write down the major sins. May Allah protect. Alright? May Allah protect. The major sins that you do. So now you can see yourself on paper. You can see who you are and you can see who you're not. Again, this is uh, not appropriate English, but it sounds good, right? You know who you are and you know who you're not, (laughs) right? So you can actually see it now on paper. You can see the person you're not by seeing all the good that's not in your life yet. And you can see who you are by looking at... uh, you know, all the bad that you have in front of you. Then have a strategy to rid yourself of the bad and slowly bring into your life all the good. Even if it takes you a lifetime, but have the strategy. Have the strategy. Everyone's different. Some people have a greater willpower. Some people's willpower is lacking. So, what you want to do is slowly but surely put a program in place. Like for example, you want to wake up for the Hajjud. Wake up for the Hajjud. Some people can manage it Easily once a month, do it. Until waking up for tahajjud once a month is something that you don't even think of. It just naturally happens. When that happens, wake up for tahajjud twice a month. And continue like that until waking up for tahajjud twice a month is easy. You know, you want to start fasting. Some people can only fast once a month. And this is from the mercy of Allah that Allah has given us months and weeks and days and hours. We have the ability to have these dead, you know, to, to set certain guidelines. Some people have the ability to fast once a week. Alhamdulillah, start with it. But don't fast twice a week. Until fasting once a week is just easy. It's, it's like how you leave the home every morning. Then make it two. Some people know they can only fast once a month. That's easy for them. Two will cause them to leave fasting Altogether, and that's the guideline. Some people say, "Well, how do I know whether something is 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 more or less?" In my humble view, this is an educated guess, by the way. In my humble view, uh, you know this by yourself. You know, am I overwhelmed by this, or is this easy? Will I be overwhelmed doing it, or is it easy? That's what you ask yourself, right? Um, and even with the Quran. Don't start reading. Read one page. Alhamdulillah a day. We know the Qur'an should be read, read daily. So you should have a daily sitting with the Qur'an. If you can't read a page, if a page will overwhelm you, read three ayat. Until three ayat become easy, then make it five. Then make it seven. Or make it six. And so on and so forth. So you get what I'm saying, brothers and sisters. The same applies to sins. With regards to sins, immediately you got to obviously seek forgiveness from Allah and you got to work on the ugly list. The major sins have to leave you. By hook or by crook. By hook or by crook. You've got to leave the major sins. Right? Uh, as soon as possible. And sincerely work towards it. And when you fall into it, seek forgiveness from Allah. So start on cancelling out that list. The ugly, the major sins. And what you will find, my dear brothers and sisters, 
that the more piety you bring into your life, and the major sins you rid from your life, the list under, you know, your bad list, you will automatically start cutting things out from there. Automatically. Right, why? Because the purpose of life is to worship Allah. And the purpose of worship is to gain taqwa. Right? This is what happens. So, Allah created us to worship Him. And He commanded us to worship Him, so we are God conscious of Allah. Right? Imagine if we didn't have to pray salah five times a day. We'll be caught up in the dunya. We'll lose consciousness of Allah. So Allah puts acts of worship to bring us in. Right? To reel us in. Right? So Allah gave us acts of worship. The wisdom behind the acts of worship is to gain God consciousness, to be God conscious of Allah. A person who's God conscious of Allah will by default stay away from sins. So what you will find is the more good you bring into your life and the major sins you kick out of your life, by default you will be cutting into the middle chapter, which is the list of bad things that you do, the sins that you do. Automatically you'll see you, you've started becoming, uh, you know, uh, you, a more honest person, automatically you're becoming a person that uh, doesn't want to look at pornography, for example. Automatically you're becoming a person that doesn't prefer to listen to music. So automatically, mashallah, that middle list is being cut into. So by the time you get to the middle list, it's not as big as you thought it was. I hope this sheds some, some... As I said, this is an educated guess and it's, it's based on looking at the Qur'an and the Sunnah and, and based on, mashallah, people who have taken the advice and, and their conclusion. Their conclusion. You know, brothers and sisters, um, I'm, you know, I'm not sure if there's somebody who's, who's equipped here um, with graphics uh, or with, for example, uh, you know, audio editing. But I would really love for somebody to try and uh, look at this lesson and create graphic uh, a graphical video, you know, like an infographic kind of video. If somebody could do that, wallahi, this would be much appreciated. Because I think we've shed some some pearls here which really um, a lot of people would benefit from. And Allah knows best. And Allah knows best. Right? So really, if you do have that ability, please step up for the sake of Allah. Right? Or if you can support uh, this production... Uh, please stand up for the sake of Allah. As I've said, throughout provisions, alhamdulillah, we're reading a beneficial book. There's a lot of benefits. Uh, perhaps, you know, um, you could benefit the ummah doing this. Uh, if you can do it, then please write in. Write in to sajidahmed.umar at uh, gmail.com. Right? Um, please do. Inshallah, it will be of, of, of great benefit. So, uh, with regards to this particular discussion here, uh, the strategy for becoming good, then... My, my strategy is burn in, do not burn out. And burning in and not burning out entails doing things slowly but surely. The Quran was not revealed overnight, nor was any city built in a day. Okay? And uh, what you want to do is start off by seeing yourself on paper. Right? Write all the good that you've learned from all your lessons that you're not doing and ideally should be doing. And that's your good list. And write all the bad, which are your minor sins, which you are doing and should not be doing. And then write the ugly, which is your major sins. Which is your major sins. And then work a strategy by kicking off the major sins and introducing the good uh, acts of worship. Slowly but surely, as I said. Right? Don't overwhelm yourself. Even if it takes you, you know, 
six months to a year to two years to bring something about. But be sincere, seek guidance from Allah, make dua to Allah. And slowly but surely, work on bringing it in. And like that, slowly but surely, start ticking your good list. And slowly but surely, start cancelling out your uh, ugly list. And by default, you will see that you have, alhamdulillah, cancelled out a lot on your bad list. And then you can go on slowly but surely, uh, kicking out the remainder. And this is how, inshallah, inshallah, you meet Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala in a way that Allah is happy with you and you are happy with Allah. And Allah sends you angels from Jannah to collect your soul. The day you pass away, may Allah send us those angels to collect our soul. Angels from Jannah, the day we pass away, and may Allah grant us a death whilst He is pleased with us. Ameen. Ya Rabbil Alameen. There was so much, uh, subhanAllah, that I wanted to get through today, but Allah blessed us to say so much as well. Uh, that was none uh, the less uh, beneficial. So Alhamdulillah, we'll stop at this particular point where we discuss the stages of da'wah. Uh, when we come back next week, we will st- uh, quickly just discuss some of the names of the Prophet wasallam and discuss the children of Rasulullah wasallam and discuss the wives of the Prophet wasallam and then go to the next chapter which is uh, the chapter regarding the guidance of Rasulullah wasallam with regards to wudu and with regards to wiping on one's socks and with regards to uh, observing tayammum and just before that I will share with you a little bit on the reasons why the scholars differ so that you do not become overwhelmed when you hear uh, certain views of Ibn al-Qayyim which perhaps go against some of the things that you have been taught already. As I said, the class is not here to overwhelm us uh, or to confuse us. The class is here to complement our knowledge and uh, you know, uh, grant us an ability to gain from the wonderful uh, blessings that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala gives to these sort of gatherings and in the same breath make us more institutionalized uh, in running our da'wah organizations uh, and our homes and our schools and so on and so forth. Brothers and sisters, uh, I love you all for the sake of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Everything correct said is from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and He is perfect and any mistakes are from myself and shaytan and I seek Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala's forgiveness. Subhanallah wa bihamdihi subhanakallahumma wa bihamdika nashadu an la ilaha illa ant nastaghfiruka wa natubu ilayk.